This discussion about business needs during the pandemic was taken from Connect America, the Pharma Software Summit by Kerber. The panel is comprised of Sandra Rodriguez, Senior Industry Analyst with Accendia, Dr. David Smith, VP Technical Operations of Ori Biotech North America, Elizabeth Doyle, HR Business Partners Software, Kerber Business Area Pharma, and myself, Frank Laughlin, Head of Strategic Account Management, Kerber Business Area Pharma. Our panelists discuss the nature of disruptive events and what valuable learnings and process updates can be gained from disruptions such as the global COVID pandemic. We hope you enjoy and gain new perspective from this lively conversation. Hello, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Doyle, and I'd like to welcome you to the final Connects panel of the day. And it's a great one, if I say so myself. When you think about disruption, what comes to your mind? Is it something positive, negative? The word disruption itself sounds like a bad thing, but is it? In a more constructive tone, maybe disruption can be a catalyst of necessary change. When the pandemic hit, manufacturing industries around the world were affected, from the tissue industry to the furniture industry. Inefficiencies were highlighted and supply chains are still stretched. The highly regulated pharmaceutical and healthcare industries were arguably the most affected, not only because of the demand for pharmaceuticals, vaccines, and PPE, but also because the disruption challenged their manufacturing agility and their ability to adapt. That's right. By nature, the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry is risk averse, which makes sense as the life-saving medicines they manufacture go into people's bodies. They have to get it right every time. Today, we're going to delve into this topic with two industry experts who have had a front row seat for the last 20 months. Our first panelist is Sandra Rodriguez. She is a senior industry analyst at Accendia, an analyst firm providing trusted advice to life science executives on business, technology, and regulatory trends. She has 19 years of experience working within FDA-regulated industries in a variety of roles and has been an industry analyst for the past six years. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you for having me. And we would like to welcome Dr. David Smith, VP Technical Operations at Ori Biotech. David has over 10 years experience in CGT manufacturing and previously led the research and development for Menaris, a leading contract manufacturing organization where he managed process development, analytical development, and innovation engineering. Thanks for being here, David. Thank you. Great to be here. Can I say yet that we are post-pandemic? <laughs> Can we please be post-pandemic? Sandra, I'm curious about your thoughts on this topic. This pandemic or disruption was a type of black swan event, meaning catastrophic, unpredictable, unforeseeable, and unplanned for. What are the major trends coming out of the maybe sort of kind of post-pandemic life science manufacturing world? Again, thank you for having me. And Elizabeth, Black Swan event is one that is extremely rare or unlikely. Now, I live in Puerto Rico. Our Black Swan events were hurricanes, Maria and Irma in 2017, that um, impacted the island just two weeks apart. Then we had another Black Swan event. We had a round of what felt like never-ending earthquakes. Now, I like to point out that the life sciences industry is probably the oldest in the world. When you think about it, before there were cars, trains, airplanes, electricity, we were identifying, treating, preventing, and trying to cure illnesses. Now, as a result of COVID, it was all eyes on the life sciences industry. So as the virus spread, our entire world changed overnight in March 2020. For any industry, being told by the government to stay home is a massive disruptive event. And we're still changing and adapting as a result. 
but we've been talking about digital transformation, specifically in life sciences, for a really long time. The pandemic, in our opinion, was the watershed moment for digital transformation. Now, we polled hundreds of life science professionals in the midst of the pandemic. So it was roughly July of last year. And 75% of the audience at that time told us that digital transformation initiatives were being accelerated in their organizations as the result of black swan events. In this case, we're talking COVID. I always point out that digital transformation is a journey, it's not a project. When we talk to life science professionals, we always ask them to define what digital transformation means to them, to their organization. This answer always depends and fluctuates, and it really depends on the size, maturity, and culture of the company. Now, we know that change is uncomfortable, um, especially as companies adopt automation and technology, because we're changing the way we work, and we're really changing the way we do things. And you don't know if something's going to work until you try it. So let's take a close look at the phrase digital transformation. Let's just start there. So the word transformation really relates to changing the way a company operates. In life sciences, that means you're becoming data-driven organizations. Let's face it, so many tasks to this day are still driven by paper-based or manually processing. So this is where the digital piece comes into play. This is where we're seeing companies consistently tell us they want to implement systems that are going to enable visibility across the enterprise and across the product lifecycle. They want to um, implement systems that will allow for intelligent and actionable decision-making abilities based on data and sometimes real data. Now, life science executives admit to us they lag behind other industries and is regulatory inertia to blame? Well, with so many disparate and siloed systems that still exist today, we can venture to guess that yes. When we think about how much customization and configuration was required to implement a technology, even if it was just 10 or even 15 years ago, the business needs were so unique that it seemed like nothing off the shelf would do. And so all of these custom integrations were built. And what happened was companies were really unable to follow a vendor's upgrade path or strategy because of all that customization and configuration. And what happened was they were left with a bunch of technology systems that are now legacy and that they've never been able to upgrade. The regulatory requirements around CSV, that often uh, times requires an entire re-implementation and revalidation of a software system. Now, that makes change incredibly time-consuming and expensive, especially when you're thinking about, I've already spent X amount of dollars implementing and validating a system. The upgrade path doesn't work. Now I have to re-implement. Now I have to revalidate. And you're just really losing time and money. So that led to this mindset. Well, if it's not broken, if it isn't getting us in trouble with the regulators, just don't touch it. Um, and as a result, time really stood still in a lot of companies. Now, I've also met a ton of director and VP level professionals over my 20 years in the industry, and they're responsible for quality and compliance. For example, Sandra Rodriguez, pharma company ABC, I'm the director of quality and compliance. Those are completely separate functions. So the point that we like to make here is that no 43s doesn't mean that you don't have any quality issues. You can be extremely inefficient, slow to respond or adapt to a changing business need, right? And still be in compliance with, with regulations, but you just probably don't have your eye on quality. So companies who already had a digital transformation roadmap and started laying a foundation for digital transformation were much better off at the start of the pandemic and probably even today. So earlier this year, we did a webinar with an executive from Pfizer as part of our Straight from the Source webinar series. And this series has been around for a while. 
and we polled the audience and we wanted to understand, is your organization ready for the next Black Swan event? Well, 38% said that they have already adapted their culture, systems, and processes in order to prepare. Just a little over half, 54% said they're working to adapt their culture, systems, and processes. And then 8% said that they don't plan on doing that. Now, these this 8% typically falls into two buckets. Sometimes there's companies who just have their head in the sand, refuse to change, or they could be the companies that went digital straight out the gate, went cloud first, felt that they were ready. They can continue to run their business from anywhere in the world at any time. And so they really don't see a need to make any changes. Now, that's a really long-winded answer to say that the life science industry executives are telling us they're accelerating digital transformation initiatives as the result of the current pandemic. And they're also working on adapting their culture systems and processes in order to be better prepared for the next Black Swan event, whatever that may be. Point is well taken that the pandemic isn't over. And when we would do MES projects, one of the things I'd love to say to the project team is it's not very often in one's career you get to change the way a company does business. And that's what these projects do from a digital standpoint. You are really changing the landscape of the way the company does business. And it's time for that to happen. David, can you tell us about some of the challenges your organization has encountered in your digital transformation journey? And also, I'm curious to know if the pandemic has affected those challenges. A favorite topic within, uh, definitely within seven gene therapy. There's so many to speak of. It could definitely be all day here. I think, you know, COVID certainly didn't ease any of the pain points. I'm also not sure it really highlighted additional ones, but more really got to the point of all the challenges that we knew about and brought them forward in prioritization. You know, when we look at the scalability, flexibility, lack of control, high labor costs, lack of labor, all of these things suddenly were on steroids. And I think, you know, as Sandra mentioned, we weren't, we're not being pulled by the regulators anymore. There's a lot more freedom there. But suddenly it was our own internal resource and the processes that we're used to running that were becoming the bottleneck for us. And it sort of a real emphasis on the lack or the disruption of communication that we had within that. Suddenly these water cooler events, the chats that happened were non-existent. The ability to drop a piece of paper on a desk with a post-it note were gone. You never knew when that person was going to be in again. And so the processes that we were reliant on, suddenly we realized they're not robust and they're definitely not even reliable in this new era that we are now working in. Now, how do you get a signature from everyone on, in the department on a new SOP that needs to be pushed through rapidly? Do you even know who needs to sign it suddenly? You're used to just giving it to the department and it figures its way through. Suddenly now you're going to have to email someone, find the right person, let them know there's a document for it. For us, you can't take documents off site. How do you deal with that? You're driving in just to sign a piece of paper. You can't do an electronic signature. That wasn't built within the, the quality management system that was in place. And so it's a real disruption of how do we deal with this? Suddenly, things that would take 24, 48 hours were now taking weeks on end in order just to get signatures through. We already had a move towards digitization, but it was clear that it was needed more than ever, to be honest. It really highlighted that there were some simple wins as well. You didn't need a full ERP, MES, LIMS, the whole caboodle to get some wins, to get some return on that investment. It could alleviate some of the pain. Suddenly the resource, however, wasn't available. We were stretched so thinly in other areas that we couldn't afford to continue on the digitization pathway that we were. 
And to be fair, rightly so. You know, not only were patients' lives at stake, but actually now our own employees were at stake. That was a new paradigm that we weren't used to. And so I think now you know, the curtains have been pulled back. The momentum is faster than ever on the need here. Everyone has felt the need for it in all the different groups and actually really vested to make it work. You know, it's a shame it took the Black Swan event, but now we do see all the groups coming together to say, we need this and we need it soon. Sandra, what are some of the biggest barriers that companies have to overcome when developing a digital transformation strategy? Peter Drucker famously said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, during a webinar with Cisco Vicente of the FDA earlier this year, and Cisco is the program manager at the FDA's Case for Quality, we learned that culture is indeed the main barrier uh, when we polled those webinar attendees. Uh, followed by regulatory and business case. So what happened was 40% of the audience, and mind you, there is a regulatory authority on this webinar, still selected culture first, followed by regulatory at 32%. 27% said that um, business case is the biggest carrier, so developing a business case, and then 1% selected technology. Let me go back to my earlier comment on clients versus quality. If your culture is compliance-focused, you're probably part of the 32% that selected regulatory requirements slash regulatory inertia. Do you really need a regulatory agency to tell you what your digital transformation strategy should and shouldn't be? That doesn't make any sense, even to folks like Cisco at the FDA. And if you don't believe me, we have plenty of these webinars on demand that the attendees at your conference this week can watch on their own and hear it directly from him. 27%, they said business case. Okay, I can buy that. But this is where having a digital roadmap is really imperative. Pointing out that 1% again, only 1% of the attendees selected technology. So we know that out of these four, technology is not going to be a barrier to your digital transformation journey. And it's so important, and I'll reiterate it time and time again, this isn't an IT project, it is a journey. Now, when it comes to this digital transformation strategy or journey, or your digital roadmap even, it's not uncommon for an ERP vendor to say, you got to start with ERP first. If it's a QMS vendor, they may say, you need to begin by moving your quality system to the cloud. You need to focus on digital quality. The truth is there's no right or wrong answer. But the time to develop and define what digital transformation means to you is definitely now because the need for visibility, sustainability, collaboration, and control has never been realized more in our industry than today. And David, to your earlier point, I've heard the term data-rich, intelligence-poor. What is the ultimate goal, maybe spurred more by this dis disruption, for getting value out of our data? Yeah, data-rich, intelligence-poor really sums up quite well kind of where we sit in this industry right now. You know, stacks and stacks of people with hugely valuable data, you know, embedded, locked away in that fireproof vault, never to see sunlight again. How do we get that data and use it as this sort of real kind of eagerness, at least within Ori Biotech, that we can gather all of these data points, not only turn them into information, but the more and more we get, we can actually go one step further and turn them into insights. And it was suddenly we go to improving our processes, not looking at just the one previous lot, but looking at the 10,000 lots that you've done and that your friends have done and all the other manufacturing sites have done and bring that all together. And what have we learned? Suddenly we're learning as an industry rather than learning within a silo. 
And so I think the way that we have data today, it is useless. Um, I think it's kind of a, a harsh point to say, but it really is. And therefore, I think, you know, our end goal is to keep the data out of the pool, make it accessible, use it to learn, improve and control our processes. But the integration of technology well, that doesn't even exist. So is that a barrier, right? That all of these boxes sit on your bench and they do a great job. They don't talk upstream or downstream. You don't have you know, your cell washer telling the bioreactor, these are the cells that are about to come, be ready for me. And the bioreactor saying, all right, I've got you for five days. I'm going to notify the formulation device of my cell count. You know, I'm ready to go. And that's just that shop floor, right? Then we've got the operators. When do you need to come into the clean room? Clinicians, when do you need to get your patient ready? Or even the patient. You know, in this digital connected world, patients are screaming for information. They would love to know. Imagine that a stage four cancer patient that can literally watch their cells growing, so to speak, going through the manufacturing process, the excitement they're going to be getting, the joy, the uplift as they can see their progress of their cells. What we really want to do is knock down all these metaphorical data, will open up everything, create a scalable digital platform architecture that enables a consistent flow of information between instruments, both up and down the value chains there, and just really have everything connected. We have the information, we just need to connect it all and utilize it better. It was a point in time, a bunch of years ago, to be honest with you too, is that we got these fantastic platforms and whether they were ERP or whatever. And I think what I heard more often than not was, it's great that we have these things. How do I get information out of them? And so I think we've gotten to a point today where we're getting a lot more information out of our platforms than we did five years ago, 10 years ago. And to your point, there's data on paper, but it's just ink. you know. And so once you do get that into the digital side, now we can do something constructive. David, how has the supply chain of CGT been affected by the pandemic? I know there was a time when the infection rate of COVID was really high and people were afraid to go to apheresis centers. That's CGT supply chain. How did the industry adjust? Yeah, it's a great point, Frank. And you know, the cell and gene therapy supply chain was already alarming with a red beacon. It was already blaring way before COVID hit. It wasn't sustainable, mostly single source. We're going to struggle to meet the demand. The industry is accelerating so rapidly. We've got no idea of what's about to hit us, and we haven't planned for it. We can't manufacture enough bags. We can't manufacture enough media. It was already there. And so, you know, you throw in the viable nature of raw materials, which include the A4E that you mentioned, it really highlighted the need to have the whole vein to vein talking to each other. You know, but I think you know the, the other interesting spin on all of this is that actually COVID hit the entire manufacturing end-to-end vein to vein. So yeah, there was a lack of apheresis, a lack of raw materials. There was also a lack of workforce to manufacture it. There was a lack of couriers to ship anything and a lack of clinical spots within a hospital to administer anything. So actually as bad as it seems any single failure point there was kind of a welcome relief to say, oh, we got away with that one, right? We didn't have to try and find someone to manufacture this. We didn't have to rush through training or something to get another operator up to speed because, you know, someone caught COVID and the last operator group, you know, were all in isolation. For me, one of the things that really highlighted was the drop in process development. 
you know, it was the easiest group to say, let's stay safe, get rid of development for now. The clinical programs, we want those to continue. We've got patients to serve. But actually, like you said, if you can't get apheresis in, and especially for donor apheresis coming in, people weren't willing to go to those. And so it really dried up the, the process development. I think it'd be really interested in the years to come to see, you know, do we see that dip in INDs and BLAs? Because everyone's taken a, a few months of process development out. I would be surprised if we don't. But I think what it did show is the fragility and the infrastructure that's around us, the short shelf life that raw materials have, the final products have, to really start looking at, is there a better way to do the manufacturing? Looking at decentralized, being closer to the patient, removing some of the logistics that's needed there, you know, easing the shipping worries of being able to maybe do bedside manufacturing. You know, but I think that in itself brings up a whole new list of challenges overcome, and we can go right back to the very first question with a brand new list. How do you have quality management of that? Where's the footprint coming from? Where's your workforce? It's all spread out. How are you going to coordinate training? Where's the expertise coming from? It's now not centralized. You need lots of experts all over the world. You know, and the list goes on and on. I think it's interesting to see how many of those workflows we can start to automate and digitize some of those to really ease the challenges. Can we digitize training? Can we send one process workflow to a hundred different instruments around the world? We know exactly what it's going to do. Could even be a cloud-based thing that's really easy to send. You can't change it. And suddenly you're starting to get a control over decentralized manufacturing. You know, and arguably we don't even have control over centralized manufacturing yet. So maybe it's a it's a big leap to get there, but we need control. Does it matter whether it's centralized or decentralized? I, I vote for both. I'll be interested to see what the thought process is, you know, as we as as I like to say, the pandemic is. Elizabeth said earlier, is the pandemic over yet? And we say no. How we think about JIT and just-in-time manufacturing and that minimal shelf-life product, you know, or the minimal amount of product we need to make manufacturing. How is CG&T thinking about that? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a, a really intriguing one. And I think on the surface, it sounds great, right? I think it really helps out. I think it alleviates so many other worries, but I think it brings in a whole boatload more that we don't even understand yet and we haven't really thought through. You know, there's a few companies that are trying to be first out there to get there, which is fantastic. I think we need to be thinking that way. I think it does ease a lot, but I do think there's a a lot of control that is lacking and we need to get our hands around that before it's really, you know, safe to do decentralized manufacturing or that sort of just in time, I think is... You know, the supply chain is very weak. I think, you know, it works when you look at lean manufacturing, when there's sort of an abundance in the supply chain, you can just do it. Where I'd worked before, could you have a, a warehouse that housed everything and you just shipped it the day before and you've got this sort of just in time at your manufacturing site and you're using sort of cheap land elsewhere to do it. So there's a, I think there's a few models there to be figured out. And in fairness, we still need the numbers to go up. The end numbers are still very low, even on commercial products. And until those end numbers get up, I'm not sure the case is there yet. No, thanks. Sandra, has the disruption affected some more than others? Have you seen any companies implement any digital solutions because of the pandemic? Thanks, Frank. Let's think about the first question. Has the disruption affected some more than others? Well, the quick answer is it depends. The disruption certainly affected some companies uh, much more than others. For example, we've seen small companies decide to go digital strike 
uh, right from the start. So these are typically the startups, uh, the companies that are coming out of incubators and are going to get their first FDA approval and clearance for uh, a product on the market, right? The term digital transformation doesn't necessarily resonate with them because they're saying, hey, we're cloud first organizations. We self-identify as paperless, digital, and data-driven organizations. We're already making data-driven decisions. We have actionable intelligence in front of us. There is no paper. If a vendor were to come in here with an on-premises system to help us run our business, we would absolutely say no right from the start. And that time and time again over the past year and a half in talking to professionals in the industry. Now, these guys said um, that they could quickly adapt. To any changes, they sent office personnel home, uh, knowing that they had access to the systems they needed in order to do their jobs. Of course, manufacturing still needed to happen if they were already in the commercial phase. Now, and that also meant whether they were increasing or decreasing capacity because some companies had to decrease their capacity. They didn't need to put as much product out there. But the companies who had already leveraged MES, and by leverage, I mean they already had MES implemented. They were taking advantage of advanced planning and scheduling ahead of the pandemic. They told us that they felt that they were much better off than some of their competitors. And we have to remember, I always say the life sciences industry is very incestuous. If you're in one pharmaceutical company, chances are you probably worked at five or maybe 10, or you've worked at four or five or four different logos because of mergers and acquisitions, or you came out of consulting or went into consulting, whatever the case may be. So these folks talk. Um, even during the pandemic, right? People were still staying in touch. We do know that some companies did feel that they were better off than others. Now, going back to my comment earlier, though, about the age of the industry, I think we forget how old some pharma companies are. I just had a birthday. I'm a year older. But in addition, because of the amount of mergers and acquisitions that happen on a daily basis, and I can say that with a fact because my job as an analyst is to stay on top of these market trends, we know that digital transformation is going to be a longer journey for some companies, especially going back to that merger and acquisition activity that is so prevalent in our industry. Now, keep in mind, it's going to be much easier for a company with 50 employees, one product, one site to agree on what does digital transformation mean? to us, where do we start, right? And let's assuming that they're a smaller company that was maybe founded 10 years ago, right? Because technology has changed so much in, in the past 10 years, I could say it's changed in the past 10 minutes or since we started having this discussion today. Now think about if you're a company with 100,000 employees or more, you've got multiple products on the market, dozens maybe, and you have dozens of facilities and partners all around the world, CDMOs, CMOs. How are you going to define digital transformation as a company? If becomes much more difficult the larger you are as an organization. But we have seen a lot of movement to the cloud in some of the, what we would say, top 20 pharma, right? The ones who have been slower to react because keeping in mind, as Dan Malice, our president and founder, who I know is also speaking at the event, always points out, you cannot turn an aircraft carrier on a dive. So, but we are seeing some momentum in those large organizations. The reason, though, that digital transformation really tends to corrupt the culture is that you got to identify who the decision makers are going to be. You have to form a digital transformation business unit, perhaps. You may even have to hire someone to lead that business unit, and you have to bring someone in from the outside. Then you're going to the multiple sites, identifying your SMEs, start laying that foundation from a data sovereignty perspective, and so on. So 
this is really when we talk about a journey and the time and effort that it's going to take, there has to be some type of level setting and expectation of reality. What's it really going to take? And in the past year and a half in talking to um, life science industry executives from medical device and pharma across the board. No two stories are the same, but any company will tell you, you need to start with that strong foundation. You have to have a good grip around a master data management and data sovereignty, figuring out your system of records and bringing all the right people to the table so that when it's time to make a decision that's going to impact a certain part of the business, you're getting the input from, from the people who know that work the best. So did the pandemic affect them more than others? Yes. And it really depended on how prepared they were ahead of time to move off of these paper and manual systems. And I know I've said it a hundred times today, but this is just still a reality in our industry, but move off of those systems and get to where they can be as an organization to start adopting a digital mindset. And this is where that culture piece is so imperative. Um, and people really need to think about, and, and it really is an obstacle to overcome. So in closing, I just want to say we have to be prepared for the next black swan event or the next disruptor, understanding we don't know today what that might be. But what we do know today is that the majority of our industry was not prepared to quickly react or adapt. Thank you. And we've certainly acknowledged that our industry can be a little slow, but how are we able to innovate so quickly to create these vaccines? And do you think in the future, we'll be better able to respond to disruptions because of this experience? I see a definitely have a bias view on this, I'll be honest. I, you know, coming from the, the cell and gene therapy background, honestly, I think it's had a huge impact on the pharma industry as a whole. I think Sandra started touching on that, you know, you're 50 people, one company, one site can move extremely fast. You literally, you have nothing. So you're out there saying, okay, I need a batch record. Where do I get one from? Do I write it on paper or do I go get a digital one? Well, digital makes a lot of sense, but if you've got nothing, it's easy to start there. And I think, you know, for me, when I look at sort of where Sun and Gene was, that clinical data, you know, four or five years ago that came out was so powerful that it pretty much forced the regulators to move mountains in order to get these cures to patients. So it saw some of the development timelines tumble. You saw, you know, hospital exemptions in the EU, fast track come in in the US, the PMD Act in uh, Japan that came in. And suddenly there's a pathway to ex expedite new therapies. And I think, you know, that really helped pave a way, at least in cell and gene therapy. But I think it said, you know, even within kind of your large molecules and things, is there a better way of doing this? I think the other big one that for me stood out was... Again, in cell and gene therapy, it's a real problem of reimbursement. The costs of these therapies are very expensive. Suddenly, and rightly so, during the pandemic, the governments pretty much took out the problem of reimbursement. They said, if you can solve this, you're going to be rewarded for it. And so the incentive was huge. We're looking at an entire population here. You're not doing maths of you know, how many patients do I need to treat? You've got the whole world's population to play with in a way. You know, I think that really helped sort of stimulate and move people a lot faster than what we've moved previously. Now, I do think all the eyes are on the pharma industry to do it again if needed. I think there'll be an expectation to move faster, to do it cheaper. Are we any more prepared than we were 20 months ago? As a whole, probably not. We're now more aware than ever of what needs to be done. And so I think, you know, we're at this point now that, 
we've seen what doesn't work and we know it needs to change, but are we ready to accept that change? Are we willing to change culture? Right now, people are dependent on us, right? Lives are dependent on us and we need to step up to that. I think, as Elizabeth said earlier, the, the pandemic's not over. And if we use the pandemic as one giant project thought process, we're not ready for lessons learned yet. So that will be coming, I'm sure. Absolutely. And I think that we could talk on this topic forever, but regrettably, we're out of time. I would like to thank our panelists, Sandra and David, for your time and insight. In closing, I think we have learned a lot today. This was not the first disruption, nor will it be the last. But for all the problems and difficulties it's caused, we have seen what is possible for the pharmaceutical industry. And I don't think there is any going back now.